I want to thank all of you who sent me birthday cards and texts and so on. I wish I could answer all of them, but I got a bunch of them, and thank you so much. I enjoyed <clears throat> another birthday this week. I got a lot of cards. Here's my favorite. Birthdays always remind me of the giant redwoods on the West Coast, the way they stand tall and proud year after year, century after century. Their majestic beauty never fails to take my breath away. Thank you for planting them. <laughs> I thought I'd taught my children to respect age. But my little smart aleck temple, she didn't get the lesson, did she? So, from the man who planted the redwoods today, open your Bible with me, please. The book of Jude, next to the book of Revelation, next to last in your Bible. You probably know that. The book of Jude. And stand when you find it, if you will, please, and we'll read God's Word together. Jude, only one chapter, verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that, here's the text, you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Look at that again. Every church needs to hear that verse, I would say, at least once a year. That you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once, one time delivered, delivered in the Bible days, of course, in the Scripture, once delivered unto the saints. And then a warning, there are certain men, there are people who creep into the church unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, and these men who creep into the church are ungodly men. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, that means immorality. They turn God's wonderful grace that He gives to us into immorality, and they deny the only Lord God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Norma and I spent this week in Fort Worth, Texas, where we had gone to conduct the services for Homer Ritchie, a dear friend of mine and a man who stood at this pulpit many, many times through the years. <clears throat> And as I visited the First Baptist Church there where we were married and I was ordained and a place of wonderful memories for us, though it's now a different building, but the same church. As I stood there, I was flooded with those precious memories that you have when you look back on many years. First Baptist Church became famous. It was pastored by the famous J. Frank Norris, some people would call him infamous, 
J. Frank Norris, but he wasn't. He was a great man. Norris became the most well-known preacher in America during the 1930s and 40s. The church was unquestionably during that time the most influential Baptist church in the United States. And J. Frank Norris was a legendary figure, a colorful figure if there ever was one. And his life was spent at the time of what became known as the modernist fundamentalist controversy, a time when Christianity was literally split in two. And one camp was called the modernist because they adopted modern thinking. That was the idea then. They were what today we would call liberals. And over on the other side of Christianity, there were the fundamentalists, they called them. And the term fundamentalist came from the fact that these people stood for the historic, fundamental, basic doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, after 9-11, they started talking about Muslim fundamentalists, and so you, you were reluctant to use the word fundamentalist and apply it to yourself because it was a pejorative. If you were a fundamentalist, that meant you were ready to kill people. But that was, that's, that's not what fundamentalism means in Christianity. It was the group of people who held to the old-time, historic, basic doctrines of the Christian faith. Norris saw the development of modernism and liberalism coming into Baptist circles back in the 1920s. He was, a, he was on the uh, board of Baylor University, a trustee there, and he found out that there were professors at Baylor who were teaching evolution. Now, this is the 1920s. This is like 100 years ago now. And because that school was then totally supported by Baptist money, he said, this is not right. These professors are undermining the faith of our young people that we're sending over there to Waco. And so he began to fight it. He wrote an article called God or Gorilla, in which he articulately expressed the view of biblical creationism before there was even a term, creationism. And Norris stood for the fundamentals of the faith. He became the leader of that in Boy, he was a colorful guy. He owned a paper called the Baptist Standard. It's still published today. And he sent it to every preacher in America. My dad up in the hills of West Virginia would read Frank Norris's paper. And Frank Norris shaped Baptist fundamentalism in America like perhaps no other man. He, um, he was a friend of Winston Churchill. And... Uh, he was a world traveler. He was an international figure. But he was a down-home guy, and he knew how to make a... He could take something and make a big deal out of it when it really wasn't. For example, old cowboy, back in those days, you know, some of the streets were still unpaved in Fort Worth. They'd have a cattle drive through town. And old, cattle, uh, old uh, cowboy came and got saved. And... Uh, Norris led him to Christ, and boy, the cowboy wanted to be baptized. He said, Dr. Norris, I don't have any family. I don't know anybody in Fort Worth. I spend all my time out on the plains punching cattle. When you baptize me, the only person on this earth that loves me is my horse, and I want my horse to see me baptized. <laughs> True story. They led the horse in through the back door. 
let him look out on the baptistry, and Norris baptized the old cowpuncher that day. So you have all, all, kinds of, all kinds of stories like that. He killed a man. There was a guy who kept calling on the phone and saying, I'm going to come down there and kill Frank Norris. Norris got him a gun, put it in his desk, and the old boy came one day and threatened him one more time, and it was the last time. And the jury heard the case, and they cleared him. Now, it made him a legend. People hated him or people loved him, depending on it. And he built that great church that he pastored two churches, Jim Simon's home church in Detroit, Michigan, Temple Baptist Church, and the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, and he would fly between them and preach in one, one week and one in the other, and the staff would take over the week he wasn't there. It was the largest Baptist membership in the world, and so it was a tremendous, great church, and then Norris died, and Homer Ritchie was his associate, and so Homer became the pastor of that great church with a seminary, hundreds of students. He was 25 years old and had a year and a half or two of pastoral experience. So you can imagine, it was a testament to his sanity, his intellect, and his leadership and perseverance that he ever survived that first year or two in that, in that maelstrom that he found himself in. And I went there in 1966, and I met Homer, and uh, there was a big rose window behind the pulpit, 25, 30 feet across, big stained glass, beautiful building, an arch, dome, twinkle lights in the ceiling. You look like you were sitting under the open sky, 2,500 seats. And I saw this preacher. I thought being a country boy from South Carolina, I thought he's got to be a liberal, you know, in a church this night. I've never seen that. This is a cathedral. This is not a church. And so I'm sitting there listening to him. Manny pulls out that Bible, and he preaches, I mean, salvation sweet and hell hot and Jesus saves and all that. I mean, he didn't back up one inch, and I thought, I like this guy. And I got to know him through the years, and I got to love him. He became like my big brother. And uh, I, he officiated at our wedding. He married Norma and I. He ordained me. He came to Florence from that big, beautiful church and preached a first revival in the old theater building. <laughs> I mean, that was from A to Z. I promise you that. And then we built our first building over here, and he came back, and he dedicated it, and then he came time after time. My daughters got ready to get married, and they said, who do you want to help? As dad walks the girls down the aisle, who's going to do the first part of the ceremony? Well, we want Uncle Homer to come. So Uncle Homer came, and he helped marry uh, both of our girls. We vacationed together many times over here on the coast. And I was so honored that I could do his service. You pray for Brenda, my wife's best friend, I guess, in the world. Every time I would pre preach on prophecy for many years, I'd call Homer because I'd say, I need for you to help me out. Now, am I set? is this right? Have I got it down? And he was my mentor. He was a great, great scholar on prophecy, wrote books on prophecy. And so I was there, and we had his service Friday morning. And on the plane, on the way home, I read an article that said that People for the American Way, a very liberal, liberal, progressive group in uh, Washington, D.C., that they were attacking a Bible study that was being held at the Capitol 
in Washington, D.C. And I read the article, and they said, these Christians, these fundamentalists, they have extreme views of Scripture. They take the Bible literally. They believe that the Bible is true. And it went on, and boy, this people from the American Way group, they are just they were just tearing them up for holding historic, fundamental, basic Bible beliefs. And being in Fort Worth, I guess the reading that article and my experience of the week had touched my heart, and I thought about attacking a group of people, some of the cabinet members of our president, who meet together early in the morning, and they study the Bible because they actually believe the Bible can give people guidance for their life. And then they're torn up by this very liberal, progressive group of people, the people for the American way. And I remember the words of George Santayana, who said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I remembered my roots, my past in Fort Worth, Texas at First Baptist Church where I really did begin to answer the call in my heart to preach the gospel. And I came to Florence, and this church is here, humanly speaking, because sitting in the pews of First Baptist Church, I said, I want to be one of them. I want to be one of them. And I came. I want you to understand there are two forms of Christianity in America today, not one. When you use the word Christianity, you haven't said a whole lot until you go further in your definitions. You see, there's liberalism, modernism, they called it back then, fundamentalism or evangelicalism now people refer to it as should mean about the same thing. And so you have the liberals and you have historic Christianity. Liberalism differs from historic Christianity. Listen very carefully to me. It places man's intellect and his reasoning above the Scripture. You have two things. You have revelation, God's revelation to man as we see it in the Bible. God revealed himself through Scripture. And you have reason over here, the human ability to think, to think logically. Reason is a wonderful thing. We're certainly not going to be critical of reason. But there's something that that supersedes reason, and that is the revelation of God in the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. Liberalism was born during the Enlightenment. Liberalism came about as a result of the scientific revolution. And you had a man particularly named Charles Darwin, the leading figure, who went down and into the tip of South America and came back and wrote his observations. And basically, he began to issue this doctrine of evolution, if you will, that God God did not, in fact, create life, that man evolved. We don't know where he came from, but that life evolved over the millennia and through the centuries, and now we have, it, we have life in its current forms. And so many people felt that that was a fact. In fact, 
they rejected Christianity, and they would always say something like this. In fact, a young man came to me the other day and said his college professor at Francis Marion said this to him just recently, stood in front of the class and said this, science is based on facts, religion is based on faith. The inference is that we don't have any facts to support our case, which is untrue. If you think that science is based on unfailing facts, just live a few years, and you'll find out that scientists change their opinion every bit as much as do religious people, that what was fact today changes through the years. Since I've been born, you were supposed to eat salt. No, don't eat salt. Yes, you can eat salt. No, you don't eat salt. Salt will kill you. No, salt's good for you. And that's the scientists. They can't make up their mind. So I'm like my dad. I'm going to eat a lot of salt because God covered the earth with two-thirds of it with salt. I'm going to eat some of it. So they reject it. They say science is based on fact, religion on faith. And they reject the faith, and as a consequence, we got what's happening in America today. Oh, I don't have time to describe it. But we have a secular society. We have a world today without God, a culture that has forgotten its roots, where it came from, how God blessed America and as a consequence, we have a secular culture. And liberalism rejects. This is what Norris was fighting, what Brother Ritchie stood for in his ministry, and what I've tried to stand for in mine here for 50 years. Liberalism rejects the fundamental beliefs of historic Christianity. Two kinds of Christianity in America. Bible-believing Christianity, evangelicalism, fundamentalism, and liberalism, modernism, the new way, if you will. What do they reject? They reject that salvation is through the shed blood of Christ alone. They don't like I am the way. They want to make an I am a way. They want to be more inclusive. They want to say that the sincere Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, or whatever, atheist even, that they'll end up going to heaven too. They deny the inspiration that God breathed out the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible that is without flaw, and how that it, God has miraculously preserved the Bible so we could have the Scriptures today still intact and still accurate. Liberalism denies the virgin birth of Christ. It denies His deity. If He was not virgin-born, He's like every other human being. It denies his miracles. In fact, it denies most supernaturalism. Liberalism today rejects the literal, physical resurrection of Christ. It makes it a spiritual resurrection. Jesus' body didn't rise. His spirit rose from the grave. Of course, his spirit never died, but that's not a liberal belief. Liberalism de-emphasizes personal sin. And since people are not responsible for their sins, sin is a result of our environment, our culture. Man is a victim of social injustice, not personal sin against the laws of God. Therefore, they don't believe in hell. So you can go to some churches for years, and you'll never see, hear the word mentioned from the pulpit. You'll hear it out there, but you won't hear it from the pulpit. They won't say that man deserves punishment for his rejection of God's truth. They, a liberal rejects the literal, visible, physical return of Christ. He thinks for us to talk about 
Christ coming back is, is fantasy. It's, it's, it, it, it could not happen. That's liberalism in America. And liberalism rejects all these basic things about the Christian faith, and yet, and yet, it continues to call itself Christian. And so across America today, you go to church, you better know where you're going to church. You better ask some questions if you're going to church. You better find out what they believe at that church. Because a great percentage of Christianity in America does not believe the historic fundamentals of the Christian faith, those basics. At Harvard University, Harvard Divinity School, in fact, the school where preachers were trained and still are today, which liberalism took over, and there was a very famous liberal, Dr. Kersop Lake. If you went to seminary, you would be familiar with his name. Dr. Kersop Lake speaking to Harvard Divinity students, said this, and I quote, it is a mistake often made by educated persons who happen to have but little knowledge of historic theology to suppose that fundamentalism is a new and strange form of thought. It is nothing of the kind. It is the survival of a theology which was once universally held by all Christians. It is the theology which was once universally held by all Christians. It is we who have departed from this tradition, not they. And I am sorry for the fate of anyone who tries to argue with a fundamentalist on the basis of authority. The Bible and the corpus theologicum, the corpus body theologicum, the body of theology. The Bible and the corpus theologicum of the church is on the fundamentalist side, end of quote. So there are two forms of Christianity in America today, liberalism and historic Christianity. Everything that calls itself Christian is not necessarily Christian. Secondly, as I stood in that old First Baptist Church, I thought, what does liberalism, I was thinking about those battles, and I was then thinking after that, reading that article on the plane, why would they attack a group of people, this liberal political advocacy group, why would they attack people for having a Bible study? That's pretty harmless, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you why. Let me tell you what liberalism believes. It believes that everyone will be eventually saved. Now, the theological word for that is universalism. Liberals believe in universalism. Before it's all over, even the people who die without Christ will someday go to heaven. It wasn't that long ago I heard a professing Southern Baptist on a television program say words to this effect. I have a friend who did not believe in Jesus Christ, but I believe I'll see him in heaven someday. I knew that. I was listening to a universalist. Everybody will ultimately be saved, every religion, every person. Well, you see, that denies the fall. That denies that we are sinners by nature and by practice. It denies all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It denies the fact that man is, is, is sinful. They believe that man is inherently good. Liberalism denies personal responsibility for sin. 
if I sin and if I do evil things, it is because that I'm a victim of my culture, my environment, that social injustice has warped me and, and, and changed my thinking, and so I'm responding to the injustices that are heaped upon me in my culture. Man's problem is his environment is not what he is. This is the liberal argument. And so man is evil to the extent of crime and poverty and lack of good education and discrimination and social injustice. That's what's caused his problems. If everybody had equal opportunity and if everybody were equal, well, then we, wouldn't, we would eliminate most of this evil that's in the culture today. Liberalism believes something different than you and me about the cross. The fancy word is the moral theory of atonement, the moral theory of atonement. It's the view of the cross. The liberal doesn't believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to satisfy our sin debt. The liberal doesn't believe that the blood of Jesus Christ that the Bible says cleanses from all sin, the liberal doesn't believe that that blood's any different than your blood and my blood. I read one time where a liberal said, blood of Jesus Christ ran down the cross, went into the sand, coagulated in the ground, rotted away. It wasn't any different than anybody else's blood. What blasphemy even. They say that his death was a, simply a moral example of sacrificial love. That we look at Jesus hanging on the cross and what we ought to be thinking is, oh, what love that a man would do that for other people. And so we ought to then practice sacrificial love in our life. Now, we know we ought to practice sacrificial love, but that wasn't the only reason that Jesus died. The Bible says he died to become a propitiation for our sins, a payment to God that we could not make, that he paid the debt I could not pay. And so their view of the cross is distorted. Jesus was more than just a great example. Jesus is my Savior today. What does liberalism believe? Liberalism takes a subjective view of the Scripture. And so it believes in what we call neo-orthodoxy is the famous, or the, the, the uh, fancy word for that. It means that truth is subjective. Here's what liberals believe about the, the truth of God's Word. I take my Bible, I pick it up, and I read it, and it doesn't mean much to me. Kind of boring. Wait a minute, I hit a verse here. Wow. Then I tell my friends, do you know what this meant to me? Do you know what this meant to me? This verse really spoke to me. Hold on. This verse is not true. They would say, now, the Scripture is true to the extent that it speaks to you. No, the Scripture is true, period. Whether it speaks to you or not, it bore the hair off your head, but it's still the Word of God. It's still the Word of God. It's not true if it speaks it is true, period. It is true because God inspired it and breathed it and preserved it for our benefit today. So truth is not subjective. Truth is not just what it means to me. Truth is objective. It's what it says that is true. You see, though, liberalism elevates your personal experience with the Bible or with religion over the plain statements of the Scripture. There's parts of the Bible, very frankly, I don't like. 
I wouldn't pick them up. I'm not going to leave behind to read this at my funeral. But it's nonetheless God's Word. (laughs) It's true whether I like it or whether it speaks to me or not. Amen, church? It's true because it is the Word of God. Now, you call that mysticism that truth is discovered internally. It's the basis today of New Age teaching, for example. The New Agers look inside for their truth. Mysticism. I don't look inside for my truth. I look in a book for truth. I read that, and in my view, that is truth. The Bible doesn't get its authority from me having faith in it or that it speaks to me. The Bible is the basis of my authority. And so the liberal has a lower view of Scripture. I've had people say, well, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. You can if you want to, but if you are, if you understand how to interpret the Bible, that you look at the historical context of the Scripture, that you study the grammatical construction of the Scripture, you define the words like the authors define those words in the day when they wrote those words, then you call that the historical, grammatical, literal interpretation of Scripture. That's what I do here. I'm, I'm glad I thought to preach a message like this because this is what this church is about. This community didn't need just one more Baptist church when I came here, but I felt it needed a church that took that kind of stand on the Word of God, boldly, openly, militantly even. That we were not ashamed to defend the Scripture. Back to our text today, contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And I've been here now for 50 years, and I'm not really not planning on leaving. I don't want you to misconstrue what I'm saying, but you know what? I want this church to believe this the day that you pat me on the stomach with the spade out here somewhere in the cemetery. I want you to be as strong in that belief about the Word of God as you were the day this church started in the old theater building. I want it to define our church, that we have this belief that God has spoken once and it has been preserved for us through the centuries. And that's why I want you to come and bring your pencil and mark your Bible and underline it and listen to me. I'm not the greatest preacher in the world. I understand that very clearly. There are people I couldn't, I'm not worthy to carry their Bible. But I can promise you one thing. You walk in those doors, you're going to hear from the Word of God. And I'm going to do my best to try to explain it to you simply and understandably and coherently and clearly and historically accurate. And I want you to love that. I want you to love that. I want you to love the Word of God and the Christian faith. I want you to be willing to stand for it, even if it costs you and your family, your job, your friends, There's no price that's too great to pay for standing on the Word of God today, ladies and gentlemen. The other thing that liberals believe, and I want to hurriedly make the point, is they believe in what is called higher criticism, which is a direct attack on the text itself. Fifteen years or so ago, a book came out. It was called The Da Vinci Code. 
I've never done that but one time in my ministry, but I took the Da Vinci Code, read the book, looked at the movie, and then I preached a series of messages on it because it was so well publicized and everybody in the country knew about it and was talking about it. And they still play that movie on television. And that book sort of was a condensation of all of the liberal thinking about the text, the Word of God. And you read that book, if you weren't well-grounded, you would, you would have serious doubts about the Bible, the truth, the integrity of the, of, of the text itself. You talked about how that the Bible had been rewritten and the text had been manipulated down through the years by the Roman Catholic Church. And he went on and on and on, all this stuff. And if you read that book and believed that book, that book would destroy your faith. Just one book. They show the movie over and over on television. I'm glad that I have been able through my lifetime to defend the Word of God. They'll tell you in higher criticism, Moses did not write the first five books. Some of you people watching on television right now, you go to a church and your Sunday school literature says that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, that four or five fellows, they don't know their name, J-D-P-Q. They wrote the five books of Moses because there's differences in the literary style of the books. I want to tell you, you're listening to raw liberalism, ladies and gentlemen. You need to find you a new church. Moses did write the first five books of the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ said he did. Daniel wasn't written later. It was written when the Bible says it was. The words of Jesus were not spoken by other people and attributed to him. The early texts were not corrupted by the, by the Gnostics, as according to the Da Vinci Code. Man has no right to judge the Word of God. The Word of God is to judge us. That's what liberals believe. Okay, now this has been a little heavy at points, but I want this to be an educated church. I want you to know what you believe and why. So my last point is this. Those theological battles of 100 years ago are having an impact on us today. All this stuff that I preached to you up until now, you oh, that's just, uh, preacher just up there rambling around. He didn't have time to pre prepare much this week. No, I, I promise you, I know exactly what I'm doing. And the theological battles that Norris and my dear friend Homer Ritchie stood for, they're having an impact right now in America. May I tell you how in four ways? Because the Bible has been cheapened and destroyed and undermined by liberal theologians, America has rejected the sacredness of human life. And we have now killed 60 million human beings in their mother's womb. A couple of weeks ago, I can't get over referring to it, the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, advocated, you heard it on the news, I'm sure, he advocated allowing a baby to die after birth if the mother and the doctors consulted and determined that the baby's life was not viable, whatever that means. But I listened to the whole news conference by Governor Northam. 
And somebody asked him what he, how he, about his faith. And he proudly said, I'm a member of the First Baptist Church of Capeville, Virginia. You see, two kinds of Christianity in America. The governor would call himself a Baptist just like I would. But what we believe, 180 degrees different. Two kinds of Christianity in America. That which is anchored to the Bible, that which is moving based on human reasoning and current opinion. In New York, I watched as the entire legislature stood to their feet with a standing ovation, legislators giving each other high fives a moment after they had just voted the most liberal abortion law in the Western world. You can kill a baby all nine months of the pregnancy legally in the state of New York. The legislature stood standing ovation and high fives all over the building. And I shook my head and said, Oh, God, how much longer can America survive when we applaud the killing of our unborn? You see, theology has an impact in the culture. I'll bet you 90% of those legislators in New York were Roman Catholics. And their teaching in their church is the same as the teaching in this church on that subject. And yet, in defiance of the clear teaching of their church and the Bible, they're given a standing ovation to the right to kill their babies. Theology impacts America is rejecting God's sovereign rule over his creation. Have you heard about the Green New Deal? Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came to the Congress with great experience. Since college, all she'd ever done is a bartender. She brought all that fountain of wisdom she learned at the bar to the Congress of the United States and they've elected her to be a star because she's smarter than all those other guys, which I could, she might have learned more at the bar than they have. I'm thinking she might be the intellectual uh, star, uh, guide for the whole Congress up there right now. And she's now proposed the Green New Deal. Really, it's a climate change bill. Among other things, she wants to eliminate airplanes over the next 10 years and cows. I won't tell you why. But that means I won't be able to eat beef or wear leather shoes or drink milk or have cheese and ice cream. Uh-oh, you get to the ice cream now, I'll fight you. <laughs> right? I'll give up the shoes, but not the ice cream. And uh, it's only going to cost $49.7 trillion. So we'll add that to the 21 trillion, we already go, oh, you know, it's, it's going to be big money before long here. Does the Bible speak about climate change? Turn your Bible, Genesis chapter 8, verse number 22. I, I haven't turned you in the Bible much today, but I want to show you one verse that absolutely kills the whole climate change argument. I'm sorry if you don't agree with me, but just read what the text says there. Genesis 8 and 22, while the earth remaineth, Seed time, spring, and fall harvest, 
and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Does the climate change? Yes, a little bit, up and down through the centuries, but God says there's always going to be the seasons. Thirdly, America, because of our theological liberalism, is embracing socialism. Let me give you the definition of socialism. Theft by government mandate. Theft by government mandate. If you believe in socialism, I won't try to convince you. I'll just ask you to go live a year in Cuba or North Korea or uh, Venezuela. Come back and tell us then. Of the, give us a glowing report, huh? Oh, my. What have we... And where does the Bible address that? It says, thou shalt not steal. The government has no right to take from one to give to another as they practice in socialism. And then there's another thing. We've forgotten God and His Word. We're embracing gender identity. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 says there are two sexes. God made man in His image, and His image made He him, male and female, made he them. Let's see, is there anybody else I can make mad today? Bad government is destroying our families, our economy, our work ethic, our educational system. We have a debt of 21 trillion, all in the name all the result of social gospel theology that's been sown in this country for a hundred years. It was a week of reminding me of what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to exalt Jesus Christ. I'm trying to exalt His Word. I'm trying to lead you that you not abandon the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That faith is not negotiable. So I don't want you to be swayed by the winds of change. I want you to be anchored to the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know why I love my Bible so much? And I know you do. Paul wrote to young Timothy. He said, from a child, you studied the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are, listen to this, 2 Timothy 2.15. The Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. What has made me wise to salvation? This right here. What has made you wise to salvation? the Word of God. And if you don't know Christ today, this has not been the typical Sunday morning evangelistic worship service sermon, but it's something I felt deeply from my heart after going to bury my, one of my dearest friends and to get on the plane and read, read about the attack on people having a Bible study. I just put it together in my mind, and I said, I need to re-preach again why we're who we are and what we are.
Will you stand to your feet with me quietly, reverently?